0: So let me, uh, let me start by just saying that I am a servant of Jesus, and I have the privilege of serving here at Soma Tacoma. But the greater privilege is I get to serve our King Jesus, and he is a King who is worth following. And the beautiful thing about serving Jesus is that he serves us as we're serving him. And so this morning, um, we get to be served by Jesus. And that's our hope, that's our expectation this morning as we're gathered together that Jesus will serve us once again, that he will open his word to us, that he'll open our hearts to hear his word. And so let me just pray as we get going before we jump into Mark chapter four. Um, Lord, thank you that you are good, you are kind, and you are gracious to us. You are abounding in loving kindness to your people. And that that is our hope and our encouragement this morning thank you jesus that you are a really good king and we love you because you first loved us and gave your life for us and lord as we open the word once again this morning we're, we're asking for you to help us Lord. we want to we want to scooch in again and get close to you and we want to hear your words and lord we can we can give sermons and hear sermons without the power of the Spirit, but we can't be changed and experience new life without your power. And so, Spirit of God, we ask you to help us. We ask you to open our ears to hear, to open our hearts, to to absorb and understand, and that you transform us um, by your Word once again. So meet with us here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're turning back to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, if you want to open your Bibles, we'll get there in a few minutes. But uh, last week, we started to look at these parables, these riddles that Jesus tells us. And one of the purposes, the primary purposes we saw for Jesus giving us these parables is to draw us in closer, to, to draw the humble in, to hear more, and, and to show us that we can't understand the kingdom without being near to the heart of the king. And in these next three parables that we're going to look at today, we're going to see another purpose for the parables that Jesus gives. And that is he gives us parables to radically adjust our expectations of Jesus' kingdom. He wants to shake us up and shake up our views of what the kingdom is and isn't. And both the first century disciples and 21st century disciples we, we all come to the kingdom with our expectations, our preconceived notions of what the kingdom should or shouldn't look like. And this morning, we all, we all come on this call with conceptions of what the kingdom should be, what the kingdom shouldn't be. And the disciples were no different. Remember the historical context of Jesus giving these parables, that the disciples were looking for a Messiah that would overthrow the rule of Rome. Like that was the hope. Israel was under Roman rule, and they were hoping for this Messiah who would come and very visibly, very violently overthrow the kingdom of Rome and set up uh, the Messiah's kingdom, God's kingdom, and show everyone who's boss. And so Jesus tells these parables to shake up that notion, to to readjust their expectations of what the kingdom looks like. Um, Robert Capone, in his book on the parables, Explains it this way. This is a little bit long of a quote, but I think it's super helpful. He says this, for Jesus, the parables were not used to explain things to people's satisfaction, but to call into question all of their previous explanations and understandings. The parables are designed to pop every circuit breaker in the mind. Mention Messiah and the disciples pictured an armed king on horseback mention forgiveness, and they start setting up rules about when it should run out. From Jesus' point of view, the sooner their misguided minds have the props knocked from under them, the better. After all their yammer about how God should or shouldn't run his own operation, getting them to just stand there with their eyes popped open and their mouths shut would be a giant step forward. Now that's a little bit crass and humorous <laughs> because jesus as he knocks out those props from underneath us as he pops our circuits he's doing it in a very gracious way he, he wants to come alongside us and very kindly readjust our expectations our view of the kingdom and like i said this is not just a first century problem this is our problem we we all come because of our upbringing, because of our experience in the world, because of our experience of the church, because of our political persuasion. We all look at the kingdom through this fog set of glasses sometimes. That's our tendency. And so we, we to use a million dollar word, we're all born syncretists. <laughs> that just means we take all of these other elements and we mix them with Jesus, and then we call it the kingdom. So we mix political conservatism or liberalism or patriotism or religious liberty or the American dream or our peculiar theological persuasions we mix them with Jesus and I try to step on everyone's toes equally there (laughs) we we mix these things with Jesus and then we become brand evangelists right we we try to evangelize people to our version or our brand of the kingdom and because every one of us has these tendencies these parables are a gift to us they're meant to Keep clearing the fog from our glasses. They're they're meant to help us unmix what was never meant to be mixed with the kingdom of Jesus. So as we come to these three parables this morning, I'd like us to ask the Spirit two questions. Number one, how can my heart be recaptured with the beauty of Jesus' kingdom? And then two, how can my energy be refocused on the goal of Jesus' kingdom? So a recaptured heart and refocused energy. And, and all three of these parables, they, ha- they all have the same theme. It's not going to seem like it when we read the first one, but all three of them have the same theme. And that is that Jesus' kingdom starts small and insignificantly, but then grows into this incomprehensible display of Jesus' glory. To, to put it another way, Jesus' kingdom is a subversive, sometimes hidden kingdom but it's unstoppable. It's unstoppable. So let's, let's look at these three parables together. And in the first parable, what we see is the inevitable goal of the kingdom. The inevitable goal of the kingdom. So look at Mark chapter 4 and verse 21. Mark chapter 4 and verse 21. It says, he said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Now, this is the probably the more difficult of the three parables in this section, um, because sometimes Jesus does talk about the lamp as the witness of his people, the witness of the disciples. But here, I don't think that's what the lamp is for a couple of reasons. First, it wouldn't make a lot of sense with the rest of the parable. If that's what it's talking about, the verses 22 and 23 don't make a whole lot of sense if the lamp is our witness. But there's a second reason. And it doesn't it doesn't show up in our English Translation, but the lamp is actually personified in verse 21. This is this is what I mean. If you look at the actual Greek text, you could actually translate it this way: Does the lamp come to be put under a basket? In other words, the lamp is actually the subject of the sentence, and there's a very definite "the" in the text. And so, the lamp here, I think, is Jesus. That's what he's talking. He's talking about himself. Jesus is the lamp this is no ordinary lamp this is the 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 light of the world the revelation of god himself jesus and so if jesus is the lamp it helps us understand this next sentence this next phrase where he says whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open remember that jesus all along has been telling people hey don't tell people who i am he tells the tells the demons, don't announce who I am. He tells people that, that are healed uh, to, to not tell others who he is. And once the crowds get big, Jesus moves to another place where he says something that offends the crowds. Jesus is, is keeping his presence low key because the kingdom of God is going to come through the cross. The, the throne is going to come through the cross. And so Jesus' kingdom starts out very insignificant looking. It starts out very inauspicious. You've got these 12 misfits as his closest followers. You've got very few disciples at the end of Jesus' ministry. And if you look at Jesus as king, you're asking, what kind of king are you? Like, what kind of kingdom are you building? This doesn't look like much. And what Jesus is saying is, yes, right now it seems the kingdom is insignificant. Right now it looks to be hidden. But don't mistake these humble beginnings as evidence that the kingdom is no big deal. Don't mistake this start of the kingdom as evidence that it's gonna fade away or that I'm not the king that I claim to be. And so, right now, at the moment when Jesus is speaking this, his full glory is hidden, it's not on display. And that full display of Jesus' glory, it starts at the resurrection. And then we know when Jesus comes again. Everyone is going to see that Jesus is the lamp, that Jesus is the light. And that's what we see all throughout the New Testament, right? Uh, Peter writes in Second Peter, or First Peter, he says, the prophets predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glory that would follow. Philippians 2 says that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death. And then the Father exalts him to that place where someday every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, will declare that Jesus is Lord. And so the kingdom starts small, it starts insignificantly, it starts in a hidden way, but it's not gonna stay that way. That's what Jesus is saying. And so the question is, will we listen to Jesus? Will we confess Jesus as Lord now, when the kingdom is not on its full display of glory, or we, will we wait until it's too late to admit that he's Lord and be compelled to confess he's Lord when it's too late? That's the question that Jesus is asking. And that's why he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear right now. If you're listening to what I'm saying, hear right now before it's too late. Carefully consider what I'm saying. And so Jesus is calling his disciples and he's, he's calling us. To hear and receive by faith his kingdom. Even though it doesn't look like what we expect it to look like. And then he's saying if if you're willing to do that. The next phrase says whoever has will be given more. In other words if we embrace this inconspicuous looking kingdom. (laughs) And we embrace Jesus words now. He's going to keep showing us how amazing and how beautiful and how glorious his kingdom is. But if we reject Jesus words. Jesus says, whatever you have, whatever you think you have, I think is the idea, even that will be taken away. And I think this is just Jesus saying the same thing that he says in Mark 8 if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul, what good is it? If you're smart, if you're religious like the Pharisees, if you live a good life, you have a great family, if you're successful, but in the end you don't have Jesus, then even what you think you have, is taken away but if you put your faith in jesus if you trust jesus you're going to find it's worth it you're going to find it's worth it you're going to find that every promise of jesus will come true that jesus kingdom will come that death and the devil will be defeated and we will experience for all eternity the light of jesus and so jesus is saying hey my kingdom's on track (laughs) The goal of my kingdom is I will be famous. The light will be shining brightly for all to see. That's coming. It's on track and nothing can stop it. That is so encouraging. Jesus isn't nervous. He's not anxious about his kingdom. It's on track. So that's the inevitable goal of the kingdom. And this next parable, I think, reinforces this truth even even more. Because what, what we see in this second parable is the progressive growth of the kingdom the progressive growth of the kingdom so look look at uh, verse 26 it says he also said this is what the kingdom of god is like a man scatters seed on the ground night and day whether he sleeps or gets up the seed sprouts and grows though he does not know how all by itself the soil produces grain first the stalk, then the head then the full kernel in the head And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now think again how the disciples would have heard this parable. They're probably hoping Jesus would have said, the kingdom of heaven is like a gladiator. (laughs) The kingdom of heaven is like a lightning bolt. It's like a mighty mountain. But Jesus uses the most mundane, everyday illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer. A farmer who plants seeds and he sleeps and those of you with kids know how fun it is to plant a garden and watch your kids expectation and impatience right you say here's some tomato seeds let's plant these and the next morning your kids say where's the tomatoes (laughs) like where's the plant and you go out and you look it's just dirt and it doesn't look like it's growing and that happens day after day and finally this little green sprout comes up to the dirt like yay it's growing where's the tomatoes <laughs> and you're like not yet you gotta you gotta keep waiting and so you wait some more it grows and then these little green tomatoes start growing on the on the vine and your kids are like there's the tomatoes can we pick them <laughs> and you're like no not yet they're not ripe you gotta wait until they're red and then when they're finally red your, your kids are excited we get to pick tomatoes and eat them the harvest has come and that, and that's the idea here and I, and I think the farmer This parable is talking about the kingdom of God as a whole. It's talking about the kingdom start and the planting that happens. And then the harvest is the end times. The harvest is is when Jesus comes back. And the idea is that even though the kingdom grows slowly and sometimes in a hidden way, it is growing. It is progressively growing. And even though this parable, I think, is the big picture of the kingdom, I think it has a lot of obvious implications for us as followers of Jesus, as seed planters, and and I love this little phrase that says the seed sprouts and grows, and the farmer goes to bed, (laughs) he goes to bed, and then he wakes up, and he goes to bed, and he wakes up, and he knows, the farmer knows that he can be faithful in planting the seed, he can be diligent in watering, and in cultivating, but he can't make the seed grow, That's the thing he he can't do. And so he goes to bed and he's patient because he knows it takes time, but he's also restful because he knows he can't produce life. And to use a phrase we've been using a lot, he's a non-anxious farmer. (laughs) He plants the seed and then he goes to bed because he knows he he can't do what only God can do. He's a non-anxious farmer. And so we're, we're called to plant the seed, family. We're called to plant and keep planting. As we saw last week, the farmer just scatters the seed everywhere. We're not called to make the seed grow. We don't need to stay up at night, anxious, wondering if the seed is gonna grow or not. We keep planting and we keep resting and we let God do what God does. And we look at the, the non-anxious face of Jesus we look at the fact that Jesus isn't wringing his hands, wondering if his kingdom is going to grow or not. And then we rest. So we, we're just seed planters. That's what we are as missionaries. We're seed planters. Trusting God to bring the increase. So Jesus' kingdom is going to reach its goal. It's going to make him famous. It will yield a harvest. There will be a harvest. There will be fruit. And then and then, number three, we see in this last parable, the global Reach of the kingdom, the global reach of the kingdom. Look at verse 30 of Mark 4. It says, Again, he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. And again, we see this seemingly insignificant, this small start of the kingdom. Jesus is using this illustration of a mustard seed. It's not technically the smallest seed, but proverbially in Jewish literature, it was considered the smallest seed. They used it as a proverb to talk about the the smallest seed that exists. And just to give you an idea of what a mustard seed looks like, this, this is what size it is right here. It's about the size of a pinhead. And as that mustard seed grows, it becomes a tree like this. It takes over. And what what a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. It starts as this insignificant, this seemingly small uh, speck of dust. And it grows into this massive tree where the birds come and find shade. And in the Old Testament, sometimes the prophets talk about the birds coming to, to the tree of the kingdom. And it's, it's talking about the worldwide spread of the kingdom. And so I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Is the kingdom is so expansive that, that the nations, people from all over the world, come and find rest. There's another rest image here, right? They rest under the shadow of this tree. And so this kingdom has a global reach. And, and family, I think it's really good for us, especially as Americans to, who tend to look at the world through American-centric lenses sometimes, to, to back up and remember and see what God's doing all over the world. Um, do you realize that China, an atheist communist country, the fastest growing religion is Christianity? In 1949, there were only 4 million Christians in China. And now there's close to 100 million Christians. And if it keeps growing the way it it is, by 2030, there'll be 300 million followers of Jesus. That's crazy. In Ethiopia, in 1970, there were just 1 million professing evangelicals. 3% of its population, just 3%. Now there's over 18% of the population who are followers of Jesus. And they're surrounded by Muslim countries. I remember when I visited Ethiopia, we, we would talk about this reality that they're surrounded by Muslim countries, they're experiencing persecution. And the Muslims are thinking we're closing in on Ethiopia. And Ethiopia is thinking all of the Muslims are coming to us so they can hear about Jesus. <laughs> and, and the pastors would sit down and they would think about their brothers and sisters in China. And they would start strategizing, how can we work our way North and East and meet them in the middle and evangelize the Muslim world? Like, that's what the gospel is doing. And it's, it's so incredibly exciting to see how God is at work. Um, when I, we first moved to Tacoma, I met with um, the director of World Relief, uh, the detention center ministry right here in Tacoma. And there's crazy stories that have come out of their ministry to people who are detained. He, he told me one story where someone was detained and they shared the gospel with him. He came to Jesus, but then he was deported. But when he was deported, he started a house church in the country he was deported back to. And they were able to follow up and see the fruit of the gospel. And so there's stories like this all over the world, family. I just want to encourage you that Jesus' kingdom is growing. Even when it doesn't seem like it is. Even when it seems small and insignificant and hidden, it's still growing. And there's still more growth to happen. There's still 3 billion unreached people in the world. And so we still have this invitation from the king to go across the street and across the globe. And so I want us to return as we end today with these two questions that I asked at the beginning. How can my heart be recaptured with Jesus? And how can my energy be refocused on the goal of the kingdom? And, and so two responses I think these parables lead us to. Number one, they lead us to hope-filled worship. Hope-filled worship um, jesus jesus is building his kingdom family he's building his kingdom and nothing can stop it and jesus doesn't need our favorite political party to be in in office jesus doesn't need religious freedom it's a gift i enjoy it every day but he doesn't need religious freedom to build his kingdom he can just as easily use the blood of martyrs as he does religious liberty and so jesus because he's strong because he's sovereign because he's beautiful He is building his kingdom all over the world and nothing can stop it. And so this means that it's not a figment of John's imagination when he says that all of us will someday, together with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, be singing, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Jesus' story is on track. And so even when it doesn't feel like it is, even when it doesn't look like it is, his kingdom's growing. And that's reason to worship. And to say, Jesus, you are worthy. But as we're worshiping, what flows from that worship is a desire to participate in Jesus' kingdom. And I think these parables, too, um, the second response is they lead us to this rest-filled participation. Rest-filled participation. And so I mentioned the the two symbols of rest. We looked at those. The farmer sleeps. He goes to bed. And then the, the birds of the air come and they rest. And so, as we as we've been talking lately about what does it look like to re-engage in, in mission in a restful way, um, this this is so encouraging for us. The kingdom of God is resting on the shoulders of Jesus. The kingdom of God and it being built is resting on the power of Jesus. But then he invites us in to participate. And and I started thinking about this image of the mustard seed, and, and I really feel like it's such a helpful image for us even though it's talking about God's kingdom as a whole to, to think about as we as we re-engage in mission what new missional mustard seed might God be calling us to plant what what new missional mustard seed might God be calling us to plant um, what what baby step that little seemingly small insignificant thing might God be calling you to do that God could use to do amazing things. You know, God loves to take the weak things of this world, the inadequate, the inexperienced, the tired. He loves to take us jars of clay and use them to spread the kingdom because then all the glory goes to him. And so what what does it look like to think about what's what's the little thing that God might be moving me towards? And, and so I, I'm going to give you a couple of examples, but I'm actually going to invite you to, to post in the chat because a lot of you are already doing this. And a lot of you are better at this than I am. And I get to learn from you and we can learn from each other. So, so as I'm giving you a couple of examples, post in the chat, what are some what are some little things that God has in the past or right now moved you towards that might seem insignificant, but that God may use in a big way as he advances his kingdom? So here, here's a couple of ideas. Maybe, maybe a missional mustard seed is for you to start going on prayer walks in your neighborhood. The weather's getting better. You set our clocks ahead, take the kids with you, and you walk through your neighborhood. It's really simple. And you just, as you see need, you just pray. As you see brokenness, you ask for God to restore it and, and ask how you might be a part of it. Maybe you sit, you talk to your neighbors and you engage them. And maybe you do the weird thing of saying, Hey, I'm out in the neighborhood praying. How can I pray for you? I remember doing this in Greenville. And we, one time we went out for about an hour and we prayed for like eight different people. And it was everything from the nets on the basketball field, keep their basketball court keep getting stolen. Will you pray? They won't be to a guy saying, Hey, my girlfriend is cheating on me in this house. And I'm sitting here waiting for me. Will you pray for me? So it's amazing the doors that God can open up with a simple question of, hey, how how can I pray for you? And maybe it's nothing. Maybe there's resistance. But but just that simple act of walking through a neighborhood and asking, hey, how how can I pray for you? Um, Maybe it's sending that letter or that email that the spirit has been nagging you to send that you haven't been able to send or haven't sent. Maybe it's uh, engaging more intentionally or creatively with sharing the gospel with your kids. Uh, maybe it's now that some of the restrictions are, are starting to lift slightly. It's, it's engaging with your neighbors in a new way. And some of you are getting vaccinated, which is awesome. Like you can hang out with other vaccinated people. <laughs> and so like the opportunities are starting, starting to open up. So what, what would it look like to, to pray and ask God, what's, what's the missional mustard seed that you're calling me? Um, to plant so yeah some of these suggestions monthly potluck neighborhood dinners I know the Tilden's do that it's great they've been doing it even over zoom which is awesome and so yeah uh, maybe it's just talking to a neighbor as you're on a walk and I love that picture Roseanne um, how Gideon uses you know he had to pick only 300 men God likes to trim us Paris us down so that we feel our need for him and his power is on display So let's keep having those conversations. Let's keep encouraging one another. What's the missional mustard seed that God might be calling us to plant? So I wanna end by showing you a video, actually. I tried to preach shorter. I don't know if I did, because I didn't keep track. (laughs) But I wanna show you a 10 minute video of of Matt Papa, who shares the story of God. And it's, every time I see this, it does the very two things that we're talking about here. It encourages me to worship and it encourages me to go. And so just being reminded and reoriented to the beautiful story of God, I'm praying that that will encourage you today. So just a quick footnote. I love everything Matt says, except the last, the next to the last sentence. (laughs) He says, the good guys win and the bad guys lose. And I know Matt's heart. And what I I think he means is Jesus wins and the devil loses. So just replace that in your mind (laughs) as you're hearing it and everything else will be good.
1: Let me tell you a story. It's no ordinary tale. No, it's the ordinary, from which every other story hails. It's the story of God. It's the story of history. And I'm not the author, no. The author is a glorious mystery. See, long before he would put his pen to the paper, long before there was time, or before there was matter, he was there all alone. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God and three persons, everlasting in existence. Completely satisfied, needing absolutely nothing, He was happy in Himself and His joy was overflowing. The Son in the arms of His holy righteous Father, the Spirit overshadowing, all glorifying one another. So why would this God even bother to create? The fountain of all happiness, can you improve upon this state? Well, the joy within Himself welling up in such capacity was so full it must be shared with a glorious society. So the mighty author, quill in hand, to share His infinite mind, His love, His joy, sat down to write His once upon a time. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He made all things to reflect His beauty and His worth. Mountains, rivers, oceans, trees all gladly testifying, endless stars and galaxies declare His glory shining. He made it all and it was good, and to culminate His work He fashioned man and breathed to life His special ball of dirt. Man came to life with blinking eyes and was welcomed by God's face. They walked with him every day and night. There was peace and no such thing as shame. God said, be fruitful, fill the earth and eat from any tree except for this one. Because if you do, you'll surely fall from me. Now, why do this and give this choice? Because he is writing a story and he's about to show the whole world the fullness of his glory conflict enters early on in the script with a snake in the garden doing what he does best running his lip flashback to when this evil was created he was an angel of heaven who fell when his head got inflated banished from God and from his endless mercy he came down to earth to tempt us with the unworthy so there in the garden on an ordinary day he came to the woman and said did God really say that you should not eat from every tree in the garden he must not want your happiness or you'd have total freedom so pridefully they listened, sinfully they took, and scorned their Creator as they ate forbidden fruit. Injustice, my friends, this is injustice, that God should be seen and then treated as a nothing, that man should completely forfeit his joy and dig for fleeting pleasures in the gutters of this world. Fallen now is all mankind, and sure to face His judgment, a world of pain, of toil and strain, and hell forever after. But God would make a promise to preserve himself a people. And through the brokenness of man, oh, could there shine a hero? The plot line continues, some character development, all supporting actors, all fantastic as embellishment. Noah found favor in God's holy sight, and when God sent the floods, he mercifully preserved his life come to Abraham and God made him a covenant he said I will bless you make your offspring abundant to Isaac and to Jacob God would come and do the same and though many dangers came to threaten his perfect plan the story would go on with the author's full control and he would lead his people everywhere that they should go flash forward now 400 years in Egypt there's a Pharaoh who doesn't like God's people growing numerous in freedom he made them slaves but God came down and chose his servant Moses a burning bush a call to go his presence was his promise Moses, tell that Pharaoh now to let my people go so they can freely worship me in the place that I will show. Plagues numerous, God will prove that he is the I am, that Pharaoh's rule is like a pawn in his glorious hand. The waters part, the millions leave to follow their great Savior. He guided them, provided for them, though they were so ungrateful. At Sinai, God gave the law so perfect and so pure. His people soon discovered, though, they could not obey these rules. They tried, they failed, they tried, they failed, compelled to live in sin. They would bow to worship idols, and they would bow to God again. They said to God, give us a king, and that will make things better. God, their rightful king, assured them this would be a fetter. They insisted. God relented, gave to them their kings. Some were good, led them to him. Some brought idolatry. Then came the prophets. Turn back to God. Sometimes the people listened, but mostly they just gave a nod because they all wanted to be Him. God will not wink at your sin, the prophets would all say. The people rose to eat and drink. They left to go and play. God finally seemed to have enough It brought a blaring quiet. The prophets ceased. The people waited. Four hundred years of silence. Enter our protagonist. Mostly unannounced. The plot is quickly rising now. Who is this guy? Nobody really knows. He's meek, he's humble, an ordinary hero. But the craziest thing about this character is, well, unlike the other characters, this is the author himself. His name was Jesus. He was born of a virgin. Fully God, he was perfect. Fully man, he was learning. Different from all the others, but tempted just the same. In every single way we are, yet without a single sin. He made the lame to John and he caused the blind to see and unlike the religious leaders he had some real authority because he came from on high and he came to redeem not to be served but to serve his haters and enemies he loved he gave showed us the heart of the author claimed no glory for himself because he came from his father and we hated him for it because we wanted to be god despised and rejected we esteemed him not Conflict escalating now. It starts with a betrayal. Judas whores his eternal Lord for 30 pieces of silver. A final meal of prayer, and then they head into the garden where Jesus sweat with drops of blood, preparing for our pardon. The soldiers took the Lord away and led him to a trial. Are you the Son of God? They say I am. There's no denying. Except, of course, for his disciples who left their Lord in fear. Jesus looked up to the sky. He was all alone from here. They led him to the praetorium, and then they began to beat him. Who hit you? They would shout and say, Oh, Father, please forgive him. They made his back a bloody mess. They whipped him till he lost his breath. They threw the cross upon his wounds, the weight of sin, 300 pounds. The great eternal Lord of all, the author of all things, now like a lamb unto the slaughter, would this be his defeat? They nailed him to the rugged cross. They shouted out, where is your God? He said, have you forsaken me? He takes a breath, his final three, it is finished. The Savior's cry, and then he bowed his head. The author of life, the Lord of all, the Son of God is dead. They laid his body in a tomb. Then everything was quiet, as God's people find themselves again in everlasting silence. Two days pass on the second morning after Jesus died Mary went to the tomb to take a look inside and when she arrived she was met by an angel she fell to the ground but he said there's no danger this Jesus Jesus is he the one you seek Mary he is not here he is risen indeed climax is true every good story has one that part where you feel a slight shift of momentum. Mary sprints to go tell the other disciples, the Lord, he's alive, he's alive like he promised. Peter and John go to see for themselves, but there's nothing there, perhaps he truly lives. Then Jesus' words came flashing to mind, they will kill the son of man, but after three days he will rise. Momentum is surely building now, the enemy is limping, Jesus finds the twelve and then he gives to them the mission. All authority is mine, all in heaven and on earth. Go and tell them I'm alive, go and tell the whole wide world and don't get slack, I'm back. Acts now, the church is born, the Holy Spirit given. The news of Jesus like the most contagious sickness spreading. Thousands saved, a mighty wind is blowing through the region. The promise God gave to Abraham, we're finally starting to see it. Repentance and forgiveness preached all in the name of Jesus. Sinners and saints alike proclaim, our God has come to save us. The Gentiles hear the story and the news is blowing up. The plan is working, gospel spreading from Asia to Africa. Martyrs laying down their lives because they know this story is true. It's a story like like no other. It's a movement you cannot undo. Constantine tried to slow it down and turn it into steeples, but an angry monk from Germany wrote some holy gospel thesis. It spread like fire and then it came to America by sale. And here we are, the 21st century, because the gospel cannot fail. It's the greatest story that's ever been told by the greatest author the world has ever known. But there is some still left to go. Yes, there is some still left to go. See, go was the command to every tribe and nation, to carry this great story to this dying generation. Because when this gospel finally spreads across the whole of earth, we're gonna hear a trumpet sound and Jesus will return. Heaven will be opened and a white horse shall appear and the one who sits upon it, all his enemies shall fear. His eyes will be like fire and his purpose will be glory. Justice for all evil, life for all who love this story. He'll come to judge the quick, the dead, and all who trod this world. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Death and Hades, he will throw into the lake of fire, and Satan too that serpent foe, that coward, that old liar. The church will rise, surround the throne, and clothed in glory his. With every tribe and tongue, we will worship him, singing, Worthy worthy is the lamb, the lamb who has been slain. Blessing and honor, glory and power forever to his name. And for ages." Ages and ages we will sing the praises of our God and King. It's the greatest story that's ever been told by the greatest author the world has ever known. Yeah, the bad guys lose, the good guys win. Jesus is Lord of all the years.